Assume nothing. Question everything and start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. How often have we talked to a believer in the Bible and it becomes immediately apparent that we know the Bible better than they do? Doesn't always happen, but it happens a lot. And I think a big reason is that we are really interested in the Bible, not just waving it around as a symbol, not just as something you put on the coffee table, but, you know, what's in it? What does it say? Where did it come from? What are the influences within the Bible? Historian, author, and filmmaker Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts, he's the real thing. He's got a show on National Geographic, and he's all over YouTube, and he's lectured all around the world. He has a series at The Great Courses Plus called The History and Archaeology of the Bible. And there's a ton of fascinating and useful stuff, like Abraham's influence on the three major religions in the United States, the apparent borrowing of so many Bible stories, you know, from the creation myths of the Babylonians feeding into the Genesis story. Interesting stuff like how the Nile would turn red because of the soil deposits that were red and bacteria in the water and it killed the fish. And this probably led into the story of Moses magically turning the Nile to blood. The details of the nativity story and how they were written after the fact, validating previous quote-unquote prophecies written long before. The Great Courses Plus has Dr. Isbout's series and a host of other subjects, audio and video streaming to you on any device and via the Great Courses Plus app. You will love the Great Courses Plus, and I want you to try it for yourself. Right now, my listeners can get a free trial, plus get $30 off when you sign up for an annual plan. Support this broadcast and learn new stuff. Sign up now with my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Seth. Take advantage of this great offer now. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Seth. So recently I've had a few fair and legitimate criticisms from lifelong atheists. And because my show is sort of reflective of my own path, right, I'm a former evangelical, and I'm helping former evangelicals tell the story about their former evangelicalism. And this can be, you know, Christianity or Islam or something else. The lifelong atheists are like, what about us? That's a fair criticism. We did this a few years ago on a broadcast called I Never Believed in God, and it's time to revisit that again. This is a show populated really with your voices as I go to the phones and talk to people who were always an atheist. 865, hi, who's this? Uh, this is Brent from Knoxville. 
Tennessee is a pretty religious state, but you never bought it? Well, it's more interesting than that. I was raised Southern Baptist, and my parents, well, my entire family is very evangelical. It just never took with me. My four brothers and my sister, they all believed. They still do. It just never took. Are they dragging you to church on Sundays? No, I'm 47 years old, and I'm kind of estranged from my family as a result of all of this. But uh, but I mean, when you were yeah. a kid, when you're young, they're evangelicals. You're a skeptical child. They must have been immersing you in the culture. Oh, yeah, yeah. My parents are putting the hard sell on me. I mean, I, I stopped believing in Santa Claus when I was about six years old, when I found out it was fake. I think that's when I became skeptical because... And I know, I know a lot of people hate this comparison, comparing God and Santa Claus, but Santa can see you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you're bad or good. Jesus is kind of the same way. You know, it, I wasn't ready to just buy in the way I did Santa Claus. So as I got older, it just didn't make sense to me that this being that has control over the entire planet and our lives and is watching us, would allow so many bad things to happen in humanity. It just didn't make sense. As I went to college and started understanding what the wider world meant with science, with history, I kind of realized that religion's just stupid. <laughs> and it's just not, it just never made sense to me. When did mom and dad realize that you were not a believer? Well, my dad died in 2011 before I came out. When my mom found out, I'm going to say this, and I hope people understand this. If you can come out as an atheist in a wrong way, I came out in the wrongest way. So she lost her mind, and we've been fighting about it ever since. I've been I've been listening to your show probably since 2010 or 2011 when you first started, and I've been following your relationship with your parents, and I'm like, you know, I've been there. You know, I'm still going through it. My mom won't talk to me. And quite frankly, I don't want to talk to her because every time we talk, it's a fight. Well, I'm sorry about your mother. I know she is convinced, likely convinced, that there's a literal heaven and a literal hell. And she doesn't want to see you burn in hell. Well, and also, I grew up with the mantra, and you may have heard this before. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. Not much you can do with that. It's Well, no. Uh, there's nothing much you can do with that. But the, but here's the thing. I tried really hard to get my mother and some of my siblings to just see it from my perspective. I've been given all of these books, apologetics books. Probably the worst one was the Josh McDowell book. Um, what's it called? Evidence That Deserves a Verdict or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Terrible, terrible book. But I've read everything that they've given me. And... They refuse to read anything that I've given them or even watch little videos. Like I sent my mom a, a link to the Julia Sweeney, Letting oh. Go of God. Yeah, Julia Sweeney's one-person stage play. She wouldn't even watch it. I mean, they won't even consider my side. And I'm going to say this with all honesty. Through my teenage years, I really tried to believe in God. I really made an effort. And what really hurts me is they tell me I've not tried hard enough. That really bothers me. And it's an insult. It's uh, saying, well, if you were reasonable, you would see it from our perspective. It's a way of diminishing you, kind of a shoot the messenger attitude. 
kind of, and it's, I worked for the United Methodist Church for about 15 years, believe it or not, and I have a lot of pastor friends. And the Methodist Church is sort of, a, they're much more liberal in their thinking. In fact, if you had 100 Methodist pastors and you asked them what they believe, you'd get 100 different explanations. But I worked in an area where I could ask questions and not be ridiculed or be judged. And so I thought that my family would be the same way. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> what's a lifelong unbeliever yeah. doing working for the Methodists? Just what's up? I needed a job. Okay. I needed a job. I worked in IT, and they were hiring. I worked in an administrative office, so it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of religion. It was just, hey, we got to get this stuff done. Well, I'm not knocking you. I it mean, a lot of people who work in this, you know, I've seen this in a technical field or in some sort of a service field where often they will work with religious institutions. I'm not begrudging you that. It was just a, a point of curiosity on my part. That's actually a point of curiosity for a lot of people who are religious. Why would an atheist work for the Methodist Church? But it never took. I tried. I gave up when I was about 23. So that's when I discovered that atheists aren't devil worshipers. They're not bad people inherently. I'm not a bad person. So I guess I define myself as an atheist, but also a humanist. So my beliefs, my morals are on that foundation that human well-being is that foundation, which everything else, all my decisions, all my beliefs are based on. I think a lot of us are starting to use humanist first. The word atheist has a lot of utility out there, and I'm glad that people searching the term can find the show, but I'd like to think I'm a humanist first, right? I mean, what I don't believe in does not define me. I think what I do believe in is good for goodness sake, without any gods required. It sounds like you got there as well, and I'm glad you did. I'm sorry for your troubles with mom, but I appreciate you sharing your can story. Can I ask you a question? Here. Yeah, please do. Can I ask you a question? When you were growing up, were you taught that secular humanism was evil? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember we were watching a Star Trek episode, classic Star Trek. Captain Kirk was going off on one of his you know, diatribes on camera and i remember my mom said something like well that's humanism and the disdain that came out of her mouth i used to listen to rush limbaugh and he would talk about he would make fun of those secular humanists and it was a it was a pejorative it was a derogatory term we had othered everybody who was not a fundamental christian bible believing christian and it was a way for us to feel smug and superior. And I think it was also kind of a shoot the messenger attitude that gave us an excuse not to listen to a contrary point of view. If the other, if the secular humanists are infected with evil and motivated by the devil, then we don't have to listen. And that was just a great excuse for us to opt out of all meaningful conversation. You know, religions have really effective protective mechanisms, whether it's shooting the messenger, othering people, blasphemy laws, edicts in scripture, etc. One follow-up question, and I don't want to take up any more of your time, but do you know the reason behind demonizing secular humanism? Because to me, from my point of view, the best way to have religious freedom is to be neutral. And that, to me, is what secular humanism means. Well, I don't know if I see neutrality as the defining characteristic of secular humanism. When I think secular, I think not necessarily atheist. But you are not promoting a theocracy 
you are a protector of like the state church line in the constitution you don't engage in religious attitudes or activities you know maybe you're you might be able to be a deist or you know have some spiritual belief and still be secular but as far as humanism i just see humanism is an acknowledgement that human beings have to solve each other's problems. You know, you don't just drop to your knees and say, Dear Lord, please feed the poor and heal the sick and help the suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Pass the salt, right? Because when you pray, a lot of times we just decide we've done something good when we haven't done anything whatsoever. You know, we are deceiving ourselves. And a humanist, I think, realize that, you know, we're going to fix this world. If we're going to alleviate suffering, dropping to your knees and saying the prayer and then getting on with the rest of your day without a care, that's not going to cut it. We're going to have to get our hands dirty. We're going to have to engage with our fellow human beings. That's what I see humanism right. as. So, I mean, I'm sure it's uh, there are varied definitions or perceptions of secular humanism, but that's just where I fall. Okay? I agree. Thanks, Seth. Appreciate you, my friend. You take care. You too. Let me clarify something real fast. I don't want to digress too much, but he'd mentioned that I was estranged from my family. I'm trying to decide if estranged is the best word. How do I even define estranged? Hang on, just saying. Yes. T-R-A-S. Let's just look it up. Estranged, definition, no longer close to or affectionate to someone, alienated. I don't know if I'm alienated as much. I mean, I've cut my parents off on the order of a few years over boundary violations, you know. But right now, we've got a cordial surface relationship. Everybody's pleasant on the surface. Obviously, there's a lot going on underneath. Some people have asked me, well, have you ever tried to have the conversations about why you no longer believe? Have you ever shown them the verses and the science and this and that? And, you know, back when I first became an atheist, that was my tactic, right? I would go at them with the data and I would be like, well, check this out. Well, this doesn't make sense. And these verses contradict each other. And the science refutes this. And this is morally atrocious, blah, blah, blah. You know how many people I deconverted using that method? Zero. Like in the one-on-ones, especially dealing with my family. I just gave up, <laughs> right? My focus as an atheist has changed over the past 12 years because when I would try to engage the dogmatic people, the hardcore, true-believing evangelical types, they just gave me that nauseating mannequin stare, that pathetic, patronizing, eye-glazed face that we so often see, and nobody changed their mind. Part of it, I think, was my own fault because my tactics were bad. Since then, I've learned a lot about brain science. We've talked recently about beliefs in the brain and how people defend, cherish beliefs that are linked to identity, blah, blah, blah. But to be totally candid, my focus as an atheist activist is no longer trying to disabuse dogmatic people from their dogmatism. I don't waste my time. I mean, I'll oppose them publicly. I'll counter them, usually publicly, but I don't sit at the coffee table with a fundamentalist and try to convince them that there is no God. It's a freaking waste of time. At least it's been a waste of my time. Every engagement I had on the order of years, 
When it was over, I wanted to go and just put my head through a plate glass window. I was so frustrated. My focus these days, it's not about the hardcore believers. I'm not deluded enough to think that I would ever talk my parents out of their faith, you know, or even many of my other family members who are devout believers. I don't waste my time. That is not where my energies are best used. These days, I'm much more interested in somebody who is already cracking the door open. They're already starting to be honest with themselves, or maybe they're curious enough about atheism non-belief, the non-religious position. Maybe they're navigating doubts. They can't tell anybody. They Google search atheist and they find the show and they realize that other people have had the same conversations. I'm interested in those who are taking a more honest journey, prepared at least to a degree to follow the evidence. Let's chase down the breadcrumbs. Let's see where the path leads us. Those are the people I'm most interested in. That's the focus of my activism. My days of going face-to-face, head-to-head, with an absolutely convinced, fundamental, I will never change my mind no matter what you say, believer, those days are over. Life is short. My time and sanity are more important to me than the engagement of someone who proudly declares that they have placed their feet in concrete and shall not be moved. No, 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 no. I'm a lot more interested in somebody who is now where I was back in 2007, dissatisfied with all the answers they've been given and finally wondering if maybe there's something more. And then a guy like me can remind them to give themselves permission to continue the journey. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to be curious. It's okay to ask questions. Any worthy God would never punish you for embracing the natural innate curiosity within you. Doubt. And if something's true, it will withstand your doubt. That is where the focus of my activism is these days. I'm done arguing with the brick walls. Life's too short, man. Life's too short. 607, hi, who's this? Hey, Seth, it's John. John, we're talking about lifelong atheists. What's up? With lifelong atheism, it's one of the few things I can say that I'm actually kind of somewhat grateful for my Asperger's. Because when I was a little kid, I always, because my parents were not religious, but my extended family were. My grandmother helped found a church in North Syracuse that my aunt and all of my other mother's siblings, apart from her, all volunteered, worked at for years and years and years. But for some reason, when I was a little kid, I just kind of equated a lot of those Bible stories that they would try to tell me in family greeting and family get-togethers, Jonah and the whale and Noah's Ark and Adam and Eve. In my head, I equated them in the same category as Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and all the Disney fantasy stuff that I had been glued to the tube on just as much, much I think to the annoyance of my family members. But I think the defining moments, at least for me, that made me realize that, you know, this is not just something that is lumped in with fantasy, and this is something that is just truly not for me. When I was about nine years old, I had my first experience with the death of a loved one, my grandfather. 
my grandfather, who was one of the founders of said church in Syracuse that I referenced. And one of the repeated things, one of the repeated statements that I got from people, you know, this grieving nine-year-old kid whose first experience with the death of a loved one, I was told repeatedly by people, God decided he just needed another angel. That was the statement that I was told as a little boy, and that just totally implanted in my head, and just like, well, what kind of selfish person is this God then, that he would take a reasonably healthy person away and just have him have a heart attack in his sleep, and no one was there to help him, no one was there to resuscitate or do anything about it, and... For me, that just put it in my head altogether that this was something beyond just a fantasy for some people. They took it literally, and I didn't want to be a part of it. You know, God who created the universe, my first thought is, hey, why don't you just go create another angel? Right, exactly. But I know you had mentioned before about you have this feeling that you're a disappointment among your family I know what that's like, too, because to that branch of my family, I don't talk to them all that very much. And it's sort of because this is a a thing that they choose to ignore, and I don't want to start a fight. I don't want to start issues with them, but we keep each other at arm's length. And it is kind of sad because of all the things that should divide people. It's just, it's a shame that this has to be a reason for that division. And have you ever heard of, I think it's a a young adult science fiction trilogy called The Tripods? No, never heard of it. No. That was the other inciting incident that sort of was the signal to my family that I was different. It was a book that I was introduced to through my English class in elementary school. And it's an extension of War of the Worlds. It's all about these big giant aliens on these big giant tripods that control the world. And they suck up everyone at a certain age and they put a little disc on their forehead that is their mind control and all that. And they do all this when they're 13. And I remember being a little kid, raising my hand in the English teacher's class and asking, so is it like baptism? That was my question. Yeah. And that got me a lot of stares from the teacher and from my classmates. And that got me into trouble with some members of my family that I asked that question. And ever since, they've been trying to... For a while, they did the thing that they that your family did to you, right? You know, they try to save your soul, save you from the damnation of hellfire. But now, ever since I started quoting George Carlin at them in my teenage years, they've just kind of left me alone and given up. But still, well, you know, I'm you know, planting the mind control discs into uh, children. That sounds like Christian summer camp. To me, but that's just a digression that I took. But I'm, I'm glad mm-hmm. you've overridden your programming to uh, be able mm, to yeah. be your own person. That's you're the hero of your own story, and good for you. You as well. Thanks for calling, man. You take care of yourself. All right. You too, Seth. All right. Take care of yourself. Later. I mean, you hear that story again and again and again 
about someone who's an atheist, lifelong or otherwise, and they don't want to hang out with their religious family, like the hardcore evangelical religious family, because who wants to hang out with people who don't fully accept them for who they are? I mean, even if you're in the same geographic location, you know they don't really respect your autonomy. They think you're broken. They're embarrassed by you. They kind of pat you on the head. They just don't fully open their hearts to you. And you're fully aware of that. So why would you choose? You're like, I wouldn't want to go on a family vacation with those people. I don't look forward to a reunion or a party with those people. Like, Why would you want to hang out with someone who, despite all the small talk, has a primary attitude of judgment about you? It's totally understandable why people will often go out and select the family they choose. Okay, fine, we're not on the same family tree, but... You get me, you support me, you respect me, even when you disagree with me, you've got my back when the chips are down. Okay, you are my family. You are the family I choose. It's totally understandable. Uh, 443, thanks for waiting on me. Who's this? Emily. Hi, Emily. Talk to me about lifelong non-belief. I never... You know, I don't relate to the people who were raised atheist because I was raised Catholic, but I didn't ever fully believe or I'm not sure if I I was I'm not sure if I ever believed at all in the religious aspect of what I was being taught to believe. I did definitely believe in Santa Claus, (laughs) but when it came to the religious stuff, it was very much like. My, you know, I knew my dad was Jewish and that he basically was like not Jewish anymore or was kind of a non-practicing Jew. And he was letting my mom raise me and my brother Catholic. But I knew my entire dad's side of the family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whatever, were Jewish. And I always had, I think, that to help prime me to question. I was confused by some basic aspects of what I was being taught as not making sense to me. I couldn't understand how heaven was what exactly heaven was and how it was going to be such a good thing to one day go to. It seemed very boring or it was weird as a concept to me that there could be a heaven and a hell and heaven could be that perfect if hell existed. Cause like, what if someone committed murder and his mother was in heaven? Would she really be happy knowing her son was in hell? Like I, I was thinking about these things from a very young age and being like, this doesn't make sense to me, but I wasn't fully like, I don't believe it. I was trying to believe it. I was, I was in, I, I did believe, I think that having faith without evidence, just believing it, r- despite the fact that there's no proof was a virtue. I was believing that I was failing at being virtuous, that something was wrong with me for not believing. I spent years of my life feeling kind of broken or kind of like, I was missing something that other people had because they could just believe and I kept questioning kind of thing, if that makes any sense. Makes total sense. Well, you know, it's another protective (laughs) mechanism. Doubt, that's a sin or weakness. Questions are fine as long as the answer is Jesus, God, whatever. (laughs) You know, I I totally understand. Yeah, so I definitely had this whole... I mean, I remember being seven and my great-grandmother's death and funeral happened. And she had had Alzheimer's for the last few years of her life, I guess. And I had only known her since she was not really herself anymore. So it wasn't 
I didn't feel very connected to her, even though I had a lot of spent quite a bit of time with her. I was more abstractly thinking about, so is she an angel now or is she in heaven? No one's teaching me what we're supposed to be believing about the afterlife now that we're finally at a funeral. I was that kind of seven-year-old, you know, I was very like thoughtfully like, what does it mean? What does it mean that, you know, when, what do you guys believe? And I was asking my mom and my aunts and they were like, what? We don't think about these things. We just don't, you know, I don't know the answer. It's just like, you know, and they weren't very helpful and they didn't care. And that was a lot of my upbringing was it doesn't really matter. You can be a Christmas and Easter, you know, going to church kind of person and that's fine. At least you believe in God. But then they were sending us to religious education classes because it was important to my grandmother, uh, CCD classes in the Catholic church. And I was being taught that it's a sin to not go to church all while everyone in our CCD class isn't going to church, like, you know, on Sundays. And I was thinking, you know, why is it a sin? That doesn't make sense, but it's a bad thing to just not go to church. I've heard a lot of callers on this show and they talk about, they were like you, right? And they got a lot of questions. They got their hand in the air. Hey, why does this work? How does that happen? Hey, somebody explain this. And, you know, the nuns or the priest or the teachers would shut him down. Sometimes they'd get him removed from the school. Like, what are all these questions? Get away, kid. You bother me. Yeah, I guess for me, I prided myself on being able to remember what the rules were and would be, and I didn't bring up the questions to the religious education teacher. I would think them to myself or I would talk maybe about them with my brother and my dad in the car or something at some point over the years. But mostly, I guess it was a lot of private questioning that I didn't think to even bring up thinking. I didn't think they had the answers. They believed this. It didn't make sense to me, but I didn't think they were going to have a way to make it make sense. So I didn't even bother asking sometimes. But yeah, when I did ask like the question about angels and if people when they die or become angels or not, you know, I didn't get very satisfactory answers because most of the people I knew didn't think about this stuff the way I did, right? Yeah. Didn't care. Yeah. When I got a little older and I knew I was going to have to be confirmed Catholic, I knew I was going to have to swear I believed in God and commit to this as like a choice that was mine to be in the religion as opposed to just the choice of my baptism, to my choice of my parents to be in the religion, you know what I mean? Like, and I, I didn't want to do it. I was like, I started to think, uh, I'm not sure I believe this is the correct religion compared to all the other options, or I don't know what I believe. And so I basically told my mom I wasn't sure I wanted to be confirmed Catholic. And she said, it's good to have a church to belong to for when you get married one day. And are you sure you don't want to be confirmed Catholic? I guess it's fine as long as you believe in God. And I said, yeah, of course. But also she was abusive and I didn't feel safe to say no to a question with such a leading answer. There was one right answer. So I said the right answer. As soon as I got home, though, I talked to my little brother privately and was like, do I believe in God? Do you believe in God? Do we believe in God? What are, what, where, where do, you know, I'm not, that's the first time I've been asked point blank in such a way, like, to really think about if I believe in God. And I was agnostic from that moment at age 14 until almost age 20. I guess it was like, yeah, age, age 19 when I was, uh, finally had taken a world religions or comparative religions class in college and understood what I was rejecting and felt more sure that I was still didn't believe any of it was true. 
and that I was an atheist. A lot of people in the audience now are probably wondering, as I am, what happened to your brother? Uh, you made this revelation. You were totally transparent. He's still a believer? I mean, yeah. you share as much as you want, but where is he at? Um, in the end, he basically, I, I, so what happened when I was 19 and I figured out I was an atheist was I tweeted about it briefly. I said, I figured out basically after taking this course, like I'm an atheist and it's like, and I stumbled by tweeting the words. Some, some things like replied to me and were like picking up on the word atheist. And I found the whole community of like the new atheist movement. And I was like enthralled that I wasn't alone and like so excited by the podcasts and the things out there that were, this was back in, um, in 2009. And I was just like, oh, I needed this. If I had known it was an option, I could have identified as an atheist sooner. And I was excited by the amazingly smart people talking about these things from a naturalistic point of view. And I shared podcast episodes and listened to them with my brother and my dad when I came home from college that, that for winter break that uh, semester. And they became an atheist alongside me like immediately, pretty much. Like two weeks after I decided I was an atheist, they were identifying actively with it as well. They already were kind of, and they just like me needed the same exact journey because for whatever reason, we were all on the same page with what is true about what's real in the world. We had diverging journeys perhaps in more recent years. And my brother's take on religion is probably quite different than mine at this point in terms of how he feels about, is it important for people who are religious to have their religion and various aspects of how to politically be an atheist, but we still are both atheists, if that makes any sense. That's interesting. Well, I hear your voice, Emily, and I'm just smiling. You know, you just make me smile. I, I think I envy you a little bit damn skeptic when you were seven years old and I'm sitting there looking you know, fresh faced and wide eyed at these guardians, these authority yeah. figures over me. And I'm like, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes. That is the truth. Yes. I, I hear and I obey, you know, <laughs> and uh, you really encourage and inspire me. And I'm happy for your, you know, your dad and your yeah. brother. That's just an awesome, happy ending to the story. And I'm so glad you shared it with us. Yeah. You take care of yourself. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. There was an interesting article that was published by the University of Cambridge, and it said, Disbelieve it or not, ancient history suggests that atheism is as natural to humans as religion. The article's a few years old, but it says this. It says, Despite being written out of large parts of history, atheists thrived in the polytheistic societies of the ancient world raising considerable doubts about whether humans really are wired for religion, a new study suggests. The claim is the central proposition of a new book by Tim Whitmarsh, professor of Greek culture and a fellow of St. John's College, University of Cambridge. In it, he suggests that atheism, which is typically seen as a modern phenomenon, was not just common in ancient Greece and pre-Christian Rome, but probably flourished more in those societies than in most civilizations since. As a result, the study challenges two assumptions that prop up current debates between atheists and believers. Firstly, the idea that atheism is a modern point of view, and second, the idea of religious universalism. 
that humans are naturally predisposed or wired to believe in gods. Whitmarsh said, We tend to see atheism as an idea that has only recently emerged in secular Western societies. The rhetoric used to describe it is hypermodern. In fact, early societies were far more capable than many since of containing atheism within the spectrum of what they considered normal. Rather than making judgments based on scientific reason, these early atheists were making what seemed to be universal objections about the paradoxical nature of religion, the fact that it asks you to accept things that aren't intuitively there in your world. The fact that this was happening thousands of years ago suggests that forms of disbelief can exist in all cultures and probably always have. I read that article and I wonder if maybe I too have had that kind of bias, just assuming that all of our ancestors were superstitious primitives who just bought into every story that came along. But the idea that people weren't skeptical hundreds, even thousands of years ago, I mean, that doesn't really wash, right? There had to have been some people who challenged authority, challenged the party line, and did their own thinking. In fact, in the article, Whitmarsh says this, he says, Believers talk about atheism as if it's a pathology of a particularly odd phase of modern Western culture that will pass. But if you ask someone to think hard, clearly people also thought this way in antiquity. I think this information is also a great tool against the apologists who say, well, we are wired to be religious. Certainly religion's explainable in terms of creating tribes, cooperation, filling in the blanks of our knowledge, alleviating our ignorance and fears, etc. Religion in those ways, hugely explainable throughout our history, but also It's important for us to remember and acknowledge that skepticism within the human condition has been around for a long, long time. And there were many lifelong atheists among our ancestors. 734. Hi, who's this? Eric. Eric. Well, it's nice to talk to you, Eric. When I was very young, I mean, I I did have at least one very religious parent, which was my dad. He was a judge up in West Michigan. And sort of the political environment in West Michigan is one in which having the persona of a devout believing family is very useful for politics, I think. He did believe devoutly, but it was also important to socialize all the kids to fit that mold. I got the indoctrination. I remember very early on, when sort of the socialization started and being introduced to the Lord's Prayer. This is the prayer that you're supposed to say every night. I'm like, so who's this disembodied, invisible person that we're supposed to be praying to, and where are they? And I think the questions didn't stop there, perhaps somewhat to my parents' consternation. But the indoctrination never took. I I did have to go to catechism. My family was Catholic. I had to go to catechism, and I, I was even an altar boy at church. When I went away to college in Houston at the age of 18, it was an enormous feeling of liberation. But I have a lot of empathy for people who do believe, who don't ever have it occur to them that it could be a different way and that the universe may work in a different way than their church tells them to. 
Well, it's nice to hear that. There are some people who look at believers and just think, what a bunch of idiots. I figured this out immediately. Why would it take somebody else? And I think they don't really take into account the environmental factors, the power of indoctrination programming, the pressures, you know, that are enforced by family and culture, et cetera. I was thinking about your dad being a judge. I guess, you know, if you wanted to, not that it would help, but, you know, you could always go to your father and say, can you present me the evidence? Well, not anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. Is <laughs> not, he not passed a, away? Not anymore. Yeah. He, oh, he, shit. He died of cancer back in, oh, dude, back in 09. I stepped in it right uh, there. Well, we, I was thinking we, to myself, if your dad was a judge. It's okay. It's, it's okay. Yeah. If your dad was a judge, you could go and you could say, can you present the evidence to prove your case? You know, what is the evidence for God so that I might render the verdict? You know. Yeah. I Well, I'm very glad that when he was confronting his mortality, that we did have some communication about his beliefs and my beliefs being different, us being our own people. And part of it was an exchange of books. And after he sent me a a large volume of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I gave him a copy of one of Richard Dawkins' books, for instance, and just said, look, we've we've got a boundary here and we're going to see things differently. I don't disrespect your views, But it's equally important to have a conversation. I don't think that talking about things on the level of let's figure out what the facts are and try to do it like we're in a courtroom is a very effective way to do those things, especially when dealing with your family. And and you may have a, a similar experience. There's a whole different level beyond just the facts and objectivity that's going on there. I was listening to you earlier And I think what you're discussing, or what what you're describing, is absolutely great. And what's needed is it's, it's giving people a permission structure to think about things a little differently than how they've been trained since the beginning. It's, it's not telling them the way things are. I, I mean, I, I remember there, there were so few people just in the whole community that I was in who even wanted to explore ideas or had the knowledge base to be able to talk about, you know, dinosaurs or how the universe works or anything like that. But I remember seeing Carl Sagan's Cosmos. I loved public television when I was young. And I remember that being like, wow, there are other people that are fascinated by this stuff in the world. But if I hadn't had the public television, I might not have even realized until going off to college that there was so much more. Well, I appreciate you so much, Uh, my friend. I'm glad you were part of the conversation. Yeah, well, I I appreciate what you're doing too. And and I I think it's absolutely awesome that what you're doing now isn't trying to persuade people that atheism is the right thing, but just simply being supportive of those who are looking at maybe making a change in their belief system and giving them a permission structure to follow their curiosity, follow their thinking, and also follow their hearts to make their lives and other people's lives better overall, make it a better world. So well, thank I appreciate you so much the that, encouragement. That. Thanks for that very much. Take care of yourself. We'll see you later. Okay. okay thank you. All right. More from Lifelong Non-believers, we continue our conversation next. 
This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's just a broadcast that's populated by our listeners. I had some people say, you're always talking about the ex-believer, about the apostate and the challenges that they go through. Why don't you talk to and with people who never bought it, people who never believed, who were always skeptical or maybe just never raised around this stuff? And I thought, you know, that's valid. So that's what we're doing on the broadcast today. I see somebody in the chat who says... God reveals himself to me every day. The beautiful mountains, lovely animals, pleasant people. Don't look for someone as a human being. View what is in front of you. Our son gives us cancer. Look at the pretty trees. We, We did a whole show on bad apologetics. We did two shows, two parts to the show. Look at the trees, look at the mountains, look at all the beauty in the world. Okay, fine. Look at child leukemia. Look at blind creatures with eyes, deaf creatures with ears, non-flying creatures with wings, heavy bones in flying animals, pelvises in whales, And, of course, the sun that gives us cancer. Look at junk DNA, right? All the shit that's in our genome that we don't actually need or use. You know, natural disasters. Oh, look, Volcano X buried thousands of people in a pile of lava. And the tsunami came in and wiped out half a country. Blah, blah, blah. It's just beautiful. Nature is wonderful. Look at the pretty rainbow. God helped me find the parking space and my lost car keys. And (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just not buying it. I'm just not buying it. Sorry about that. I just went off on a tangent. I've got a Skype call. I don't see a number, but uh, hi, who's this? Yeah, my name's uh, Tom. Hi, Tom. And I'm a British guy, and I'm living in Japan. I'm a sturdy atheist at the age of 60 and uh, always have been. And I just wanted to share with you how relaxing it is to live in Japan. Um where nobody really seems to care very much about religion. As I'm sure you know, we have these two big religions here in Japan, uh, Shinto and Buddhism. And if you look at the government statistics, in a population of 120 million people, we've got about 180 million believers. 
That's because the government counts lots of people twice because they're both Buddhists and Shintoists. And they're not really too fussed about that. Believe in Shinto, believe in Buddhism, have a Shinto birth ceremony, have a Buddhist funeral, and in between you can have a fashionable Christian wedding. And it's all mostly for show, for ceremony, and nobody takes it very seriously. For example, when there's a general election, nobody wants to know the religious beliefs of the uh, leaders of the various parties. It's a complete non-issue. The day after tomorrow is the 10th anniversary of the 3-11 disasters, the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdowns in northeastern Japan. At the time, virtually nobody in Japan thought that that disaster that killed nearly 20,000 people was punishment from God. A number of American televangelists made the point. They said this was because Japan has not heard the word of missionaries over the decades and has refused to become Christian. But in Japan, virtually nobody thought that way. It's a natural disaster. It's just one of those things. They have a lot of natural disasters here. And so the UK also, although, yes, it's produced the likes of Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, most of the time in everyday life, people aren't making a big thing about religion. And so when I tune into your podcast, it's uh, like tuning into life on a different planet. Um, the tremendous fights, the tremendous struggles, the deep internal conflicts about religion. And, um, you know, it's just so relaxing not living in America. Well, Tom, I have a question for you. When I see the listings of the more secular countries, I usually see Japan near the top of the list. Would you think that accurate? Is Japan, I mean, despite perhaps an outward window dressing mm. of religion, is it a secular country? Well, you know, this is one of the famous contradictions about Japan. On the one hand, you have thousands and thousands of Buddhist temples, thousands and thousands of Shinto shrines. And yet, when the government conducts surveys, something like two-thirds of the people state that they are non-religious. That's not exactly the same as being atheist. There are very few militant atheists in Japan, just as there are very few militant theists. But, you know, this picture has to be modified with a couple of points. First of all, the obsession with death. Japanese people must not only conduct a, a proper funeral, when someone dies. They also have to revisit the gravesite and carry out more ceremonies seven weeks after the person has died, a year after, three years after, seven years after, and so on. You can go up to a hundred years or more if you take these ancestor rituals seriously. And so these same people who say that they are non-religious will feel very bad really quite seriously guilty if they do not make regular visits to the ancestral graves. That's one kind of qualification. The other one is that about 10% of the population is drawn to so-called new religions, uh, religious cults, whether it's okay to call them cults or not is kind of debatable, but you may have heard of Soka Gakkai 
It's the biggest sort of offshoot of Buddhism in Japan, and it controls Japan's third biggest political party. And, you know, it has many millions of followers. And so there are some Japanese people who don't like this kind of vague soup of not really believing and just going to temples for, you know, New Year's or the mid-year, the, the midsummer festival to celebrate the deceased ancestors. There's this part of the population that really wants something more hardcore and they are attracted to these minority fringe religions. And some of them are, are very big and powerful, especially Soka Gakkai. You know, Tom, I use Japan as an example against the Christians and Christian nationalists and Christian dominionists who mm. talk about how without the Christian God, it's moral anarchy. It's the degradation of mm -hmm. society. And I always just sort of point over the ocean and go, but Japan, mm -hmm. right? Japan is really a peaceful, advanced, highly civilized culture. You know, we don't see moral yeah. anarchy. You know, there's not blood in the streets in Japan, and they're certainly yeah. not a Christian nation. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely, I'd agree. And there's a, one more interesting point uh, that I'd like to add, which is that although Christians only make up about 2 or 3% of the population here in Japan, believe it or not, Japan has had eight Christian prime ministers over the last century, including a couple in the last decade. And it's perfectly possible for a Christian to become prime minister in Japan, whereas, as you know, it's virtually impossible for a non-Christian to become the president of the United States. In that so context, though, did their Christianity inform how they governed? I think it was an influence on some of them, but I think that Christianity, by the way, these people are roughly half and half between Catholics and various kinds of Protestant, but I think that it's a sort of elite pastime, you know? It's like in England, you play polo. <laughs> in Japan, <laughs> you join the Christian church. It's a sort of aristocratic brand name, something like that. And the political culture that surrounds them is totally non-religious. And uh, I can't really say I've noticed any of these prime ministers doing something that I would call overtly Christian. But may I make one more point about Christianity Please do. in Japan? Please do. Okay, so in the USA, Christianity nowadays tends to be associated with the right wing especially evangelical Christianity. Of course, I, I know Joe Biden's a Catholic, and you have all stripes. But anyway, by and large, it's the religion of the establishment. In Japan, because it's such a minority religion, it tends to be associated with anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian attitudes. There are a lot of left-wing Christians. The first socialist prime minister Japan ever had was Tetsu Katayama in 1946, just after the war. And he was a Christian and a socialist. And uh, so I think that in countries like Japan, where Christianity is a small minority, it's more likely to be associated with more progressive politics. Now, what's that even like? Like here, if you're a devout fundamentalist, dominionist Christian, 
you are almost always mm. hardcore right wing doing battle with every mm. other out group in the country. One of the things that um, makes Christians in Japan stand out from other people is that they engage in charity. It's very interesting to compare charity between the US and Japan. Japan is notorious for having very low levels of charitable giving. At the same time, Japan has a very small homeless population, and those people who are homeless or obviously very poor very seldom beg. And people like to argue about this. Do they not beg because of their pride? Or do they not beg because they know nobody's going to give them any money anyway? You know, which came first, the not begging or the not giving? However, Christians in Japan engage in charitable activities. You look at a slum district in a big Japanese city, you're going to find Christian missions, giving out food, distributing blankets. And most of the time, Buddhists or non-religious people in Japan tend not to do that. Well, the people who help the poor, they're either Christians or they're politically left-wing, and sometimes both. And for the rest of Japan, at a glance, they seem cold. They don't help the poor. Charitable giving is not, it's not even 5% of what it is in, in the USA. But on the other hand, these same people don't mind paying slightly higher taxes to fund a proper welfare system. And to me, American charity is closely related to American hypocrisy. Yeah, you'll give a hundred bucks to a homeless guy on Christmas Day, but will you pay an extra penny on your income tax to fund a proper welfare program? No way. For me, the Japanese way where they will pay their taxes and support a proper welfare system is far preferable to the American way where you starve people of welfare and then they're expected to be grateful for a few crumbs of charity. I think that's a conversation you and I could probably have for an hour and a half on another show. It, it is certainly a compelling subject. I do want to apologize for all the terror that the United States has caused you on this side of the ocean as you watch the religiosity, the Christian nationalist, the conspiracy wingnuts, and just the overall circus tent that the United States has mm -hmm. become. But I'd like to think, hopefully, a slight shift towards sanity might be beginning. Stay tuned, Tom, and we shall see what the months and years ahead bring us, okay? I much look forward to following developments on Planet USA. Planet USA. Take care of yourself, Tom. Thanks again, brother. Okay. Cheerio for now. Bye. See you later. I found his voice relaxing. Like, I feel like I just attended a very pleasant college course. <laughs> you know, not a boring one, but one where you sit back and you go, ah, oh, good teacher. Three, one, zero. Hi, who's this? This is Nick. Hi, Seth. Nick, what's up? Well, uh, it's funny you should, uh, the, the topic of this show should be about the lifelong atheists because I'm one. And uh, uh, I actually happen to have uh, grown up in the den of great Satan himself. <laughs> the den of great yes, Satan. Uh, We're talking it, about it, the USSR or what? Oh, yeah. Big time. It was kind of interesting. You know, you know um, 
Not growing up religious was very eye-opening in many respects. My grandmother was religious, but I never felt any urge to uh, join a religion. I actually read a lot of uh, ancient mythology growing up. My first encounter with the Bible was when I was about 12. So I open up you know, the, the, the first part of Genesis, I read through it and I go, wait, stop. Why does this say in the beginning? It's supposed to be in the end. It's the tail end of a numerology, idiots. That's what happens in the end, after Marduk defeats Tiamat, and then he builds the world out of her body parts. So it was, it was kind, of, kind of an interesting thing to see and kind of uh, reason my way through this. All right, hang on, hold on. Can you say that again for me, because I'm not sure I understood. Which part made no sense? It's not that it didn't make any sense. It was just interesting how the beginning of one myth grew out of the tail part of another. The Christian creation myth grew out of... Yes, and Enumailish, the, the Shumerian creation myth. So it was just interesting to see how one thing would morph into each other and sort of continue to exist on its own. I heard another related story, this may or may not be true, about the myth of the Great Flood, Noah's Flood, and how it was almost oh, yeah. certainly that, that been around forever. based on earlier Sumerian myths reflective of actual localized flooding in that part of the world. And so the myths were born of that and then echoed into the Christian Bible, that kind of thing. Definitely. And you you can, you can actually find, uh, you know, parts from other stories. Like if you read through um, Gilgamesh, the story of uh, Enkidu, he's made by a mother goddess and he lives out in the, uh, in the wild with the animals and they're all his friends. And he protects them from the hunters, and eventually the king starts hearing about him not letting people hunt and letting the animals eat all the crops. So he sends a woman down who teaches him about the human ways, wink, wink, not nudge, nudge. So after that, the animals can't look at him anymore. And he has to leave the animal kingdom and go, uh, go and live with the humans. Didn't uh, the Gilgamesh story also include a man building a ship, the flooding of the world? And I think the gods actually had regrets after flooding the world. They were sorry that they did it. That, that was much later in the story. That's when Gilgamesh actually goes on his quest. We could also talk about the religious holidays borrowed one from another, right? The Christians borrowing oh. from the pagans and you know, <laughs> you know, all of that. I mean, everything then, out there is, seems to be borrowed or at and, least cherry-picked from other stuff that someone said, hey, let's do that, rebrand it, and call it you, ours. All you need to do is to look at how the same Christian holiday is celebrated in different cultures. And you will see that it's been lifted from somewhere, and in every place it's been lifted from the local tradition that existed uh, before then. Back in the old country, there is a, uh, an Easter custom. You cut some pussy willow branches, and you take them to the church to be sprinkled with the holy water. And then you make a little arrangement out of it, and you put it up in your home. So in what way is that a Christian celebration? Uh, it sounds very or pagan. Another, oh, yeah. And not, not only pagan, but it's Slavic pagan. To draw back to my original question, seeing uh-huh. these mythologies and how they have sort of borrowed or stolen from each other, that informed your rejection of religion. It's why you did not ever really buy it. Is that right? Yes. And also, I just didn't buy the whole organized religion thing. 
it was so obvious that this is being used as a control tool, not unlike what the uh, Soviet authorities would do, uh, you know, in the uh, in the armed forces and stuff. Uh, it was just so obviously contrived for organization purposes. Uh, it was just it, it wasn't even funny. Well, uh, you've uh, you're a great call, and you're a lot of fun to talk to. I appreciate the uh, the contribution today, and you take care out there. Okay. Thanks. Likewise. Bye. 419, hi. Who is this? Matt. I can't speak on lifelong non-belief for me. I've always had an air of skepticism, though. I've, I've not been able to just blindly follow along with anybody and what they said. I did believe in Jesus, and I was saved and had a personal relationship, I would say, probably up until my early adulthood. I constantly had questions like the misogyny and the hatred of homosexuality and some of the crazy stuff that went on in the Old Testament. And then as I got older and started studying science, I started questioning, why is all this scientifically inaccurate stuff in the Bible if it's such a perfect book? And then I joined the military, and I've been around people of all types of beliefs, faiths, non-beliefs. And the strangest thing occurred to me when I talked to uh, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, they all have the same level of confidence in their faith, even though their beliefs are contradictory toward the uh, Christian God. So I started wondering, is it possible for everyone to have their own God that's true? And I said, if I believe the Bible, that, that can't be true. So then I started questioning that. And then the thing that had me holding on to uh, my faith for a while was the morality thing. And then I spent a year over in Korea, and as you know, Korea, uh, South Korea, South Korea is a very non-religious country, 46%, according to Pew Research. And I was over there, and the lack of crime, violence, and overall issues that we have here in the States are non-existent over there. So I said, how can a secular country be this moral? And then I'd say within the last eight to 10 months, I came out as atheist to my family. And my mother's been very accepting but she, she quoted at me the uh, Proverbs verse about train your child up in the way that he should go, that he'll, he'll ret return to it when he's older. And then, of course, my grandmother always, anytime I talk to her on the phone, she's praying for me and wants me to tell her that I'm praying for her. I just, I don't know how to address those two uh, things with my uh, mother and grandmother. You know, the one that gets me, it's supposed to be a conversation stopper when I'm speaking to an apologist, and they just look at me and say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. As if that's some sort of yeah. a an argument winner. I just sort of look at him like, and? <laughs> what, you know, what are you talking about? Regarding all the different people who think that their specific religions are absolute truth, I'm reminded of that meme out there that says, not all of them can be true but all of them can be false. Exactly, because I have, a, uh, I have a Muslim friend here in the service with me, and I asked him, because he told me he's been to uh, Mecca, and I asked him about that, um, about what the, uh, the big block in the middle of, I, I don't know what the actual name is. I, I, I apologize. If I'm, no, if yeah, I'm when they go to Hajj. Yeah, 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 I asked him what that was all about and what they felt while they were there, and he says, he says, you feel the presence of Allah and you feel a great awakening of your faith and an energy and stuff like that. And I said, that's strange because Christians say the same thing when they're like Pentecostals say the same thing when they start speaking in tongues and start shaking and raising their hands and all that. I said, so who's correct here? Because you guys both make these same claims, but yet you guys have contradictions in saying one cannot be true if the other is. 
Isn't it interesting to watch how geography plays? What I talk to a Southern Baptist deacon, I'll often say, if you were born in Yemen, right, what are the chances you would be a Southern Baptist deacon? And we can see these microcosms, well, not even microcosms, you can see religious influence by the country. You go down to Mexico, it's Catholic. If you go into China, a lot of Eastern religion. If you go to any of the Islamic theocracies, of course, they're quoting the Quran. Even within Christianity in the United States, if you go to the Deep South, Baptist Pentecostal, if you go further north, you got Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopal. I mean, you can see how geography and culture really do influence the foundation of belief. Probably the hardest thing it was for me, I started uh, questioning scientifically the Bible when I was, uh, I'd say between like seven and 10, because I love dinosaurs. I'm not going to lie, I still love dinosaurs, but I was always taught, my parents let me believe and let me know that it was scientifically accurate that dinosaurs are hundreds of millions of years old. But the Bible, of course, as a lot of evangelicals believe, is 10,000 years old. So that, that, that was where, that was probably one of the first fractures in my belief in the Bible's inerrancy. And some people uh, claim it's allegorical, and I just, I, I asked them, I said, I, if I don't know what's allegorical and what's not, how am I supposed to discern what is an allegory then in, in the book? Jesus himself could just be a lesson in an allegory. Yeah, it's a great tool, I think, for engaging the believer. How do you choose? How do you decide what's metaphor and what's literal? Okay, let's say it's all metaphor. Executing disobedient children with rocks. What does that teach us? What does the beating of slaves teach us? What is a man setting his child on fire for God? What is the moral lesson to be taught by this metaphor or allegory? I mean, there's a lot of utility in trying to nail people down on the specifics. But you are certainly a non-believer now. You don't buy any of it. No, no. And uh, my most recent question, and I've asked some ministers this question, and I said, they believe that Jesus is God. They tell me yes. I say, God cannot sin, correct? And then they tell me, yes. I said, then Jesus wasn't actually truly tempted, because if he would have given in to his temptation, it wouldn't have been a sin. You've got the contradiction in the uh, notion of Jesus being God and human at the same time. Let me make sure I'm understanding. You're saying that if Jesus can do no wrong and he had decided to receive Satan's temptation on the mountain or any of the temptations of the flesh— if he had done it, it would then, by definition, not be a sin? Yes, because God himself cannot sin. Yeah, but in that scenario, he didn't acquiesce to sin. Yes. So I'm, I'm yes, not sure I'm yes, tracking. But I'm saying even if he acquiesced, it wouldn't be sin because God cannot sin. Just like God in the book of Job acquiesced to Satan's request to uh, make Job suffer. God didn't sin in that, but he did acquiesce to Satan's request. And he did promote and create suffering or evil. We've seen that God creates evil in the book of Isaiah. This is a philosophical question. This is up there with, can God make <laughs> yeah. a boulder so big he cannot lift it? I will leave it to our friends in the comments section to chew on Jesus and sin. Yep. These type of questions that have no answer in most people's minds and even in the Bible are the reason that I can't discern the Bible as being truthful. All right, man. Well, you've given us something to talk about for sure. Thanks for calling the show. You take care, okay? Thank you. If Jesus committed a sinful act, but Jesus cannot sin, then the act would not be sinful? 
Because I see it a little bit differently. I see Jesus would not have sinned. He simply would not participate because he, as the story goes, is sinless. So the sin itself remains unchanged. It's just Jesus chose non-participation. I will let you in the comment section talk about that one. It was really nice to spend a whole show with our callers, and I thank you so much for calling and for listening. Have a wonderful week. Take care. Be safe. I'll see you later. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring The Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.